Hey everyone, Jason here. Before we get going, I just wanted to take a moment to give a quick shout out to the new paid membership option that we recently rolled out. This option is meant for people that have been getting value from the podcast and want to enable us to keep producing it in a more sustained way. It's also for people that want extra stuff, such as bonus content, a Slack room that's vibrant and filled with people tackling climate change from a wide range of backgrounds and perspectives, as well as a host of programming and events that get organized in the Slack room. We also have a virtual town hall once a month where you can get a preview of what's to come and provide feedback and input on our direction. We'll be adding more membership benefits over time. If you want to learn more, just go to the website, myclimatejourney.co. And if you're already a member... Thank you so much for your support. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Dan Kamen, Dr. Kamen is a distinguished professor of energy at the University of California, Berkeley, and has parallel appointments in the Energy and Resources Group, the Goldman School of Public Policy, and the Department of Nuclear Engineering. He was also appointed the first Environment and Climate Partnership for the Americas Fellow by Secretary of State Hillary Clinton in April 2010. He's the founding director of the Renewable and Appropriate Energy Laboratory, co-director of the Berkeley Institute of the Environment, and director of the Transportation Sustainability Research Center. He's founded or is on the board of over 10 companies and has served the state of California and the U.S. federal government in expert and advisory capacities. Now, his bio goes on and on from there, so I was both very excited and also a little intimidated about this discussion. But Dan's a super guy, and we have a long-form discussion in this episode about Dan's background how his perspective on the problem of climate change has evolved over the years, how he thinks about the problem today, the best path or path forward to help us address the problem, and also some of the issues and barriers that are holding us back and what we might do about them. Dan's perspective is particularly unique given the diverse background that he brings, which I find super interesting given the systems nature of the problem. Dan Kamen. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. I have to say, we've never spoken before, but from the size of your bio and the contents of your bio, I am intimidated to have this discussion. I don't think so. Academic bios are designed to be long for reasons I don't understand. So. Academic, but you've got an interesting blend because there's an academic component, there's a published author component, there's a private sector component, there's a government component. And I think those types of discussions and those types of backgrounds are immensely interesting for me, given the systems nature of the problems that we're dealing with. No, I agree. I mean, that's why having an academic job is great, because it allows you to keep some of the research and investigative threads going through good and bad funding times. But it's ultimately, for me, the implementation of climate solutions that is how I kind of define my career. So yeah, bouncing back between those different worlds is really what I like to do. 
Yeah, no, and I, although I've been focused on climate a heck of a lot less long as you, I kind of think similarly, people say like, so you're focused on the podcast or so you're focused on the community or so you're focused on investing or so you're focused on advising early stage companies or things like that. And it's like, well, actually, no, I'm focused on figuring out how to have the maximum impact on the problem of climate change. And this portfolio of things is constantly in flux and evolving as I'm figuring out how to grow the impact that I can have in this growing web of people that are involved in my climate journey community can have on the problem. But I'm not wed to any one kind of function or occupation or anything like that. I'm just wed to having the biggest impact that I can. Getting something done. Yeah. Yeah. So how would you, I mean, it's given the diversity of your experience, how would you describe professional you and what you do? So I started out as a physicist. I went through undergraduate and graduate school in physics, but I hadn't decided to be a professor. Actually, my interests were divided between physics research and becoming an astronaut. And being an astronaut didn't work out because I failed the vision test when I went off to the NASA testing grounds. And so that pushed me towards kind of the research side. And so I began my academic career first in physics, but then working on energy problems, mainly on the technology side. So better, longer lasting, lower cost solar cells, hardware to go into energy storage systems. But the more you do that, the more that leads you to the astronaut world, the we don't just research it, we want to do, right? The joke is that there's, in Jurassic Park, they said there's two kinds of kids, those who want to grow up to be astronomers, those who want to be astronauts. And I always like to think that it's both. And so the more you work on low carbon energy technologies, particularly when I started several decades ago, when essentially none of them were affordable, we're now in a world where all of them were affordable. And that pushes you even more towards understanding the systems approach. And so in my academic work here at University of California, Berkeley, I have teams working on off-grid power for Southeast Asia, for East Africa, and I have teams looking at systems integration. And then I have a whole bunch of postdocs and fellows that come through that are really interested in the implementation, whether that's spinning out of my laboratory to form a company or to set up a nonprofit to do energy and conflict regions in Africa, or it's people who really want to learn enough technical material so that when they go into companies or state or federal office, they feel like they're really on top of the science and engineering. And so my lab is really a mixture of those things. And the projects and opportunities we have will range from working with very small off-grid communities, Native American communities in the United States, or very small coastal communities in Kenya or Nicaragua, all the way up to trying to redesign the power system at the scale of the US or China. And so my physics background has morphed into some mixture of physics, electrical engineering, policy. And as a result, I probably have the most schizophrenic faculty position of anyone I know at Berkeley. I'm in the energy and resources group where I'm chair. I'm in the Goldman School of Policy and I'm in the Department of Nuclear Engineering. And I definitely know I have too many meetings as a result, but I wouldn't want it any other way because I feel like that mixture of science of decarbonization energy technology options and policy really fits my work at the university. And when I go into public service, I go back and forth between jobs at the State Department, the World Bank, California government. And so that mix really describes where I feel like you can really maximize getting things done on not just a low carbon economy, but an increasingly one that's focused around equity and equality. 
So it's my impression, and granted, I caution myself about my impressions because in 2003, I took a month before grad school and I went backpacking around Europe, and I only had a month to cover way more ground than we could possibly fit in a month. And so what we would do is we would make a stop in each place. We would go to Barcelona, for example, or Madrid, or Lisbon, or places like that. And as we did, we would just land in one part of the city. We wouldn't have a plan. We would stay 24 or 48 hours, and then we would move to the next. And that would be our impression of the city. But I think about Boston, where I live, and it's like, if you you happen to overnight in Alston versus Beacon Hill versus Kendall Square, you know, versus Harvard Square or Dorchester or Mattapan or any of these places, you get a very different impression of the city. And so that's kind of been my experience with climate change, right? I'm so broad, and but I get a little sliver of all these different things. That was my preamble. My impression, though, is that when it comes to energy, there's like renewables and everything that's going on over there with the grid and clean energy transition and things like that. And then nuclear, of course, is an incredibly prolific energy source, but it tends to be of like a different group of people, a different discussion, kind of siloed off doing its own thing. Is that your impression as well? I think it was. There's no question that nuclear was so-called born secret. It came out of the war efforts and the early civilian reactors. The first civilian reactor was in Shipping Ports, Pennsylvania. These were really spin outs of the military industrial complex, not value judgment, but the military industrial world. And for decades, that was really how people saw nuclear potentially fitting in. It was the technology that was different because it is both energy dense, but it also comes with some very large risks. But what's happened in the last decade and a half is that a whole suite of technologies that the U.S. government, the French government, the Russian government didn't have the bandwidth to research, bandwidth both people and money, have found private sector backers. And whether those end up being things that are useful in the safe, low-cost commercial world of terrestrial energy, or whether there are things that end up being better for space missions and other features is something that we're going to see. But most of the high-profile billionaires that you hear about these days have made some pitch into nuclear. So it has privatized very similar to how the space launch world that was only governments for a long time now has the Elon Musk's, the Richard Branson's, it's now got a real private sector flavor. And so nuclear is in this point of transition. But in terms of climate change, what we don't know yet is will nuclear undertake this transition and become a player in the climate change story? or whether it'll just be part of our long-term future. And I say just, and I don't mean in a bad way, but we know that the climate change story will be decided between now and 2050. And whether nuclear becomes a different player in that coming 30 years is something that no one can say. There are people who have plans to scale it up, but right now the least cost clean energy technologies are not nuclear. They are solar, wind, increasingly energy storage, geothermal power. And so whether nuclear becomes a partner in that low carbon world is something that we're going to see. I believe nuclear will be very important in the long term after I'm retired and gone. But whether it's a real player in the climate change story where we have only a few decades left, that's still a question. Why does it get so much backlash and how much of that backlash is founded? That's a hard question. It gets a lot of backlash for the obvious reasons that we've had some spectacular disasters in the nuclear world. From Chernobyl to Three Mile Island to Fukushima, the downsides are really severe. 
Whether it's justified or not is a much more complicated question because it very much depends on what's your perspective. Many more people have died and many more animals and ecosystems have died from coal than nuclear. But each nuclear accident is so horrific that it changes the landscape for the technology going forward. And so nuclear's role is really this complex one because humans are really bad at understanding and thinking about low probability, high consequence events. And while coal is like the creeping cancer that eats away at our health, the ecosystem's health, when nuclear has a bad day, it's a doozy. And so I think that's really the position that nuclear has to straddle, and it's why nuclear for decades was a government-only enterprise. And obviously, they're private companies, but they were very tied to the government setup. Now, nuclear is trying something new, and it is a big experiment. We don't know whether small modular reactors or uranium-thorium mixed reactors are going to be cost-effective and significantly safer and cheaper so that they get to play in a world right now where when you look at the low carbon future, what solar has done is so dramatic. And most of my career as a energy physicist has actually been with solar and storage. And so when I started grad school, solar was the most expensive of all the technologies. Today in 2020, solar in many parts of the world is the cheapest. I don't mean with subsidies. I mean, just simply you buy the hardware, you install it, you buy energy storage to go with it. And that is the least cost technology for many places in many parts of the world. That transition is just kind of remarkable. It means that solar has gone to scale in a way that some very smart people were simply dead wrong on decades ago. And so every time I hear someone saying solar is getting at the end of its learning or improvement curve, I say, don't count out the technology that has made the global biggest change over the past decades. Is it true that most people either work on solar or renewables or nuclear, but that you kind of have to pick a side? Like you work on both, which seems like a rare breed. It generally is, you're right, that people have generally picked a side. And I would even go further that Frequently, I have seen people who are strongly in the solar camp devoting a great deal of effort to attacking the nuclear camp. And people in nuclear, I think, have gone overboard in attacking renewables, whereas the enemy is climate change and the enemy is fossil fuels, because that economy, however you think about what it got us to today, simply can't be the energy system of the future. And so I think you're right. People like me that work in both. And physicists have kind of a nice training to work in both solar and nuclear. And I always joke that, of course, solar is nuclear. It happens to be 93 million miles away, but solar, of course, is fusion. And so I see a natural match between the two. But I think you have to have that kind of physics and policy kind of love like I have to see them as potentially real partners. So the people that advocate that 100% renewables can get us there and should get us there and any talk of any kind of portfolio that doesn't just laser focus on that is a distraction that slows our progress. How do you react to that? Well, so, I mean, there's no question that 100% renewables is possible. 
I've done a lot of research. My lab works on scenarios to get U.S., China, Mexico, Kenya, Bangladesh, Morocco to 100% renewables. And in many cases where the technology mix is improving enough, the climate favors it, you can do that. It's also a case that we are not today ready to think about a solar and wind-only world but solar and wind plus storage, plus geothermal, plus potentially nuclear. I'm much more bullish today on keeping the current nuclear plants operating than on picking a winner of the emerging technologies. But all the plants we have today, and there's about 420 nuclear plants in operation around the world, 100 of them are in the United States, 60 in France. So those two countries alone dominate who has nuclear. All those plants have to be retired by the mid-century 2050 witching number when we've got to be on a clean economy. And so that means that for nuclear to have a role, it will need to not only replace 420 plants worldwide, which the industry is not ready for, but expand that share. And that's why I say that 100% clean energy world, we could get there with the classic renewables and storage alone. It just makes the job of space heating and industry and a whole variety of things quite challenging. And so for me, not investigating a portfolio would be irresponsible. How much is not having an answer to long duration storage holding us back? And how realistic is it that we'll ever have an answer to long duration, i.e. seasonal and beyond storage? And you're talking about renewable storage, just to make sure, because some people, when you say storage and long duration, they're thinking nuclear. Yeah. Intermittency for renewables. Yeah. So just like I said, don't sell solar short, don't sell storage short. And for many reasons, it's the same thing. Solar has this huge benefit that there's multiple material science, there's multiple technologies. There's traditional crystalline, there's thin film, there's organic solar cells, there's quantum dots, there's proscovites. Some of those are commercial today, some of those are coming. Same thing is true for storage. When I used to go and testify to the U.S. House and Senate 15, 20 years ago around something like air quality and vehicle mile per gallon, for example, you would get someone saying, well, cars are never going to get much more efficient. We can maybe have some small increases, but we're not going to do much better. And that's really people said that about energy storage. They said, well, we have lead acid batteries, car batteries, truck batteries. They're not going to meet the challenge and everything else is too expensive. Now we have lithium ion batteries for our devices, and they are very cost effective. They have some challenges and materials and lifetimes, but storage has now diversified so that there's lithium ion, nickel metal hydride, liquid flow batteries. We have mechanical batteries like flywheels. We have physical battery systems. There are companies that now essentially move rock uphill or up cranes, and they have storage that's mechanical. And so storage is 10 years behind where solar was in the sense that it is improving and its diversity is its biggest strength. And how much of what we need to achieve 100% renewables exists today? And if there's anything missing, what's missing? Well, I would say we have everything we need today in the sense that we have sufficient opportunities for expanded solar and wind and storage, while it's not as cheap as we want it to be, 
it has met and exceeded all of the national milestones. And so what I would say we need is more and lower cost storage and more and lower cost go together. For every technology, we see these learning or experience curves where the more you build and deploy, the cheaper it gets. And so storage is there, but we would pay a premium if we built out everything overnight. And that's actually why I am so pleased to see Vice President Biden's plan, where he initially was saying 2050 was his target year for 100% clean energy. But in the last month, he's upped that to, say, 2035. And that was a very shrewd choice because it reflects where we are with the cost declines of renewables, the cost declines of storage. And so we're there in terms of having the tools, but we want to make clean energy available for all. So a ubiquitous justice argument needs to go in there. And so for that, we need continuing innovation. We need the R&D pipeline to be reinvigorated. We need more different products, technologies, and we need more systems thinking because in many cases, we're wasting so much energy through inefficiency, through transmission systems that lose energy, that we are not living up to the best of our technologies, but we need to make those better as well. So I would say this is a co-evolution that will get us there. But if we were charged with you must replace all fossil fuel overnight. We could do it. It would just be prohibitively expensive. And when you take a step back from technology innovation and you just look at the overall transition, are there key levers that if this one or a handful of things happens, they'll have an outsized impact more than any other thing? Or is it more like there's tens, hundreds, thousands of things that need to happen and they all help push the boulder down the mountain and we need it all and shouldn't have favorites? Well, I think we shouldn't have favorites in the sense that all these technologies, these low carbon ones are a benefit, but there are still some levers there that are critically important. Now that solar and wind have gotten cheaper than fossil fuels for much of the country and much of the world, we're actually seeing something that was obvious to economists, but was not obvious to kind of sustainability thinkers. And that is just by having a lower cost gizmo, here's a little off-grid solar light, solar panel on the front, LED light on the back, and then a lithium ion battery. So here's an example of something that needs to get cheaper, but there are some really critical individual things that we should be doing. The biggest one is that the world subsidizes fossil fuels to a huge degree. Depending whose math, it's between a half a trillion and five trillion dollars a year that governments of the world put into subsidizing coal, oil, and gas. And to put that number in perspective, the global renewable energy industry has invested about two and a half trillion over the past decade. And yet we now currently subsidize fossil fuels by about that same amount each year. So getting rid of fossil fuel subsidies would be the number one thing on the agenda. And you can, of course, either do it by getting rid of those subsidies, but many of those are baked into the giveaways that governments give to many companies. Or you could think about increasing the carbon price. And so removing fossil fuel subsidies and or getting rid of or and adding a price on carbon. Those two are at the top of my list because they would reset the playing field. The other thing which I think is central to getting us to this clean economy is that we've treated climate change as kind of an academic exercise. There are lots and lots of academic groups, 
think tanks that write about what we need to do. And those are all true. But climate change up until recently, up until the efforts of Greta Thunberg and the youth and some of the real alarmists has not been a movement. And the next stage needs to be a movement. And I think we're seeing that now and making climate change and social and racial justice kind of co-equal partners. To me, that's an example of moving from a critical scientific issue to a movement. And you mentioned getting rid of fossil fuel subsidies and a price on carbon as two key things that we could do. I understand that that those would both be impactful things to do, but I mean, how realistic is it that we can do either of those things anytime soon, regardless of who wins in the upcoming election? This has really become an issue where the U.S. is the real outlier. Europe has had a price of carbon for quite some time, well over a decade. It has some problems. The price has fluctuated. China is launching a price of carbon that will, of course, be the biggest carbon market in the world. And China's launching theirs at just about the exact same price that we have in California, which is about 20 U.S. dollars a ton. That's on the low end of the range we think is needed to tip whole economies. But Europe... California, China being aligned on this means that the federal argument in the United States, because certainly Republicans in the U.S. are against a carbon price, and some Democrats are too. And so where I say I would like to see a carbon price, yes. Do I think we need it to get there? No, because I think that removing these fossil fuel subsidies would be essentially the equivalent. And because clean energy has become so inexpensive, We really need to unlock innovation from private companies to state-level utility planners and regulators that often don't see clean energy as as cheap as it is because they're so invested in the old way of doing things. And so opening up markets to clean energy, rewarding cities that protect human health, which often means the health of underprivileged people and minorities, those are all things that we can put into place without having to spend all our time obsessing about a carbon price or the subsidies. And those things as well would move clean energy into the central part of our economy. And every day you hear a story, the coal museum in Kentucky just put solar panels on the roof. We have wildcat natural gas frackers that are using some of their land to also do solar. Even in the industries that are the most ideologically opposed to clean energy, we're seeing that transition. And then you look at places like California, we've been running 60 to 75% on clean energy every day for the last month. Costa Rica just has run for almost 150 days straight with clean energy. Same thing is happening in England. And so we are seeing that just on the energy infrastructure generation side, clean energy can get there. And that's even before we get to the job story. And there are many, many more jobs available per dollar invested in renewables than in fossil fuels. And so if you combine lower costs with more jobs, the fact that clean energy has become such an ideological football in the United States is really bucking the global transition, which is seeing clean energy as the natural way to go. And I mean, we've talked about innovation and we've talked about certain specific policy initiatives like the fossil fuel subsidies or a price on carbon. But if you look bigger picture at things like capitalism and even just like the way that we're used to living our lives, I mean, can those just kind of go on as they do, except swapping out things that are clean or do we need dramatic changes or somewhere in between? Like, I guess, how do the things we've been talking about on the technology and policy side fit into the bigger picture? And what are the implications for life as we know it, if any? 
the preface that I would say that innovation, new companies, new business models is all about the future, whereas politics is generally about the past, because politics is generally about who is rich and empowered today, whereas every startup and even big companies that want to build new markets, they're all about the future. And so innovation and industry, I think, are aligned around the clean energy economy we want to see. And even Shell, they were dramatically cutting their fossil fuel business and ramping up the renewable business. But the broader question you ask, is it enough to simply close our fossil plants and swap in renewables? That's a harder question because we have done such damage to the planet. And COVID, for example, there's no question that the chance of COVID-type outbreaks is where it is today because we have done such damage to nature. We have put humans in much more direct contact with many of the pathogens and illnesses. We have weakened ecosystems that keep things like this in check. And so switching from a dirty energy economy to a clean energy economy has to be job one. If we don't do that, nothing else works. But on the other hand, we also need to give back land to nature. We need to think very differently about the social contract we have with each other so that one out of seven people on the planet isn't living in energy poverty. And to fix those things, I think we do need the larger perspective you're talking about. And so, for example, clean energy isn't just beneficial because there's no carbon emissions. It's also beneficial because by managing the supply, the life cycle of materials in our solar panels and wind turbines and batteries, we can actually go to an economy which the Chinese call a circular economy. We can be recycling much, much more of the material. So we don't throw away the lithium in our cell phone. We recycle it into new devices. We don't pour the effluent, the slag from our coal plants into rivers. We invest in renewables so that we can repair ecosystems. And we're now starting to see the first really hopeful signs. In California and British Columbia, we're seeing serious efforts to decommission dams. Yes, they're considered low carbon, but of course, dams in many parts of the world have submerged vegetation, so there's methane emissions. But by thinking about the opportunities from solar and wind and geothermal and potentially nuclear to now get rid of some of the world's big dams and to return rivers to free-flowing status, that's a invaluable benefit of the clean energy transition. And if we don't do those things, we're not reaping all the benefits. And so I think that an example that comes up a lot, which really just encapsulates how far you can go, is the transition from a gas-powered car to an electric vehicle isn't just about the improvement in miles per gallon, which is already impressive. Gas-powered car, average in the United States, 25, 28 miles per gallon. Electric vehicle, even in the states powered by coal, that's a vehicle getting 60, 70 miles per gallon. An electric vehicle in a clean energy state like California or New York or Vermont, that's a vehicle getting 120, 130 miles a gallon. So the mile per gallon equivalent is a big deal. That's just the start. Go to an electric vehicle, you have no tailpipe emission, which means you improve air quality in our cities. You cut down the bills that we get from exposure to particulates and asthma. You have co-benefits that frequently benefit the poor more than anywhere else. And as we go to a cleaner and cleaner electricity mix, we don't just cite those emissions at some big power plants. We get rid of them from the system altogether, except for the manufacturing, which we can also clean up. So that's this kind of win-win or 
that kind of virtuous cycle that you start to see as you emphasize clean energy more and more. You mentioned the importance of social and racial justice, both as something that needs to be addressed, but also kind of a close collaborator to the decarbonization and mutual dependencies, if you will. So what makes you say that? And how will that play out? How should that play out? So we really didn't recognize for decades just how damaging to our most vulnerable populations our fossil fuel economy is. We have our oil refineries that are in low-income areas, and whether the oil refinery came first or the low-income community came first, it kind of doesn't really matter. They are co-located. Our nuclear industry has much of the waste and the mining issues in low-income communities, whereas the power plants tend to go into nicer suburbs. And so everything from the fossil fuel to how we've treated infrastructure has been something where the benefits have gone to the affluent and the harms have gone to the poor. And this is something that we are seeing very clearly in COVID. We are seeing that the quality of care goes first to the more affluent, not to lower income individuals. We have more cases of COVID on the Navajo reservation than in 13 states combined. So we have a sad history of disproportionate benefits to the affluent and the penalties to the poor. And what's come out of the Greta Thunberg youth climate movement to the Black Lives Matter movement has been a real recognition that we need to rethink our infrastructure. And thankfully, clean energy is aligned with that mission in just a remarkable way. The ability to have low cost energy on the rooftop of homes to reduce the pollution burden in low-income communities, to not only link up how we do power generation, but to do cleaner and cleaner industrial activities through renewables and potentially nuclear. These are all opportunities that the clean life cycle of renewables allows us to engage on the social justice side. And I think we're going to look back at this period of time and we're going to see that dealing with inequality and greed was far more difficult than dealing with with dirty energy. Clean energy simply beats it out. I hate to say it in this day and age, but renewables trump fossil fuels. What's harder for us to wrap our minds around is how do we really make this a story about social equality? Because we're more tied to our petty differences and petty greeds than I think we're going to see ourselves as tied to fossil fuels. One of the things that I struggle with is that on any given day, I bounce back and forth between seeing so many things that give me cause for optimism and hope and so many things that give me cause for despair. And so it's just hard to know how we're doing. If you just take a point in time snapshot, look at the math, we're not doing well at all. But if you look at all the different things that are going on that could feed each other and have virtual cycles kick in, there's a lot to be encouraged about. But then same thing in terms of the apathy the foot dragging, the sabotaging, the trade groups working maliciously behind the scenes, et cetera. So at this moment in time, so this is what, August 6th of 2020, where are we on that pendulum as you look at the world? Well, I mean, I think that we're at a low, not due to technology and innovation and social progress. We're at a low due to partisanship. In the 50s and early 60s, for all of the problems, we generated huge amounts of pollution. We isolated minorities in communities through white flight, through a whole variety of things. There was a, an investment and a reliance on innovation from funding basic research and development to testing out new ideas. And in this very partisan moment we're in, 
the fact that in the United States, there's even this argument that we should trust science or not. And the right wing of the Republican Party has highlighted a real distrust for science, despite the fact that the quality of their own lives is very clearly dependent on that scientific advance from medicine and healthcare to quality of homes and jobs. And so I really look at this as a moment that we'll look back on and just shake our heads in how self-destructive we were at a time when we weren't actually championing science. The real issue is not do you invest in science or not, it's how do you make science and innovation something which is a partnership, not just for the already affluent, that we're solving problems that are problems for the poor, and that anyone who really feels they want to grow up to be scientist, innovator, that's an available path. And we now are seeing clear, clear data that if you're a Latino, if you're African-American, your chance to go into these fields over the past decades has been severely limited by systemic racism. So I see this as a really sad moment, and I'm very hopeful that we will emerge from it. Most of the rest of the world is emerging from it. Most of the metrics around investing in science and innovation in Europe and South Korea and elsewhere are very positive. United States right now is at a point where discussing schools and healthcare and investing in research and development have become partisan divides. And it's just so painful because the people arguing against these things, their lives have been made so much better by being pro-science, pro-innovation. So this is the bigger problem we need to fix. So what do we do? I mean, granted, the U.S. is only one piece. I mean, we had a bigger role historically than we'll have going forwards from a, an emission standpoint, but we still have played an outsized role and we have outsized resources and might relative to much of the rest of the world and a responsibility, I would argue, to have a leadership role in cleaning up the mess that we played a significant role in making. Certainly, there's a good chunk of the country that doesn't seem to agree with that. But I mean, what path forward do you see that would give you the most hope? Ironically, I think that we've allowed ourselves to get here because we have marginalized people for so long. Low-income minority groups across the country have gotten the short end of the stick over and over again in terms of access to the benefits of a technological, policy-savvy society. And we're seeing other places pass us by. And so I actually think that recognizing that many of our challenges are going to require better scientific literacy, better human literacy in the sense of understanding that we are only as good a society as the most vulnerable and that walling off communities through technology and through physical barriers, that's a recipe for decay. Whereas investing in communities, public schools, so that equity and access are part of our equation, I actually think that helps us to solve climate. And I think that solving climate helps us to recognize that societies that become as unequal as ours is, and actually Brazil and the United States are two of the most unequitable societies we have in terms of economic opportunity for low-income residents and high-income. Ironically, we both right now have leaders that are going in absolutely the wrong direction. And so replacing both the leader in the United States and in Brazil are critical jobs to getting their societies to recognize that we can innovate and we can do it in a way that's for everyone. Right now, we see that innovation, the worries of globalization, the worries of investment are things that only benefit the rich. That is 
the feature, I think, as we can undo that, catch up to the rest of the world, we can actually make innovation something that everyone, no matter what your political party and persuasion is in favor of. And innovation, I don't just mean hardware. I also mean social innovations. How do we integrate communities? How do we make school access more equal? How do we make air quality beneficial and not just for the rich, but for everyone? Those are all climate and society interface points. So January 2021, there's a new administration in place, whoever it is, it could be an incumbent, it could be new, but there's a administration in place for the next four years. What advice do you have for that sitting president for first hundred days and for the next four years in terms of what they should be focusing on in this regard? We are still going to be working the COVID recovery at that point as well. And part of that recovery is to recognize that subsidizing pollution and inequality are not good tools for governance. And the countries that have made their COVID response also a green stimulus, like South Korea and New Zealand and Denmark, they're already reaping the benefits. Their economies are open. Kids are going to school there. They wear masks, but they don't worry about this incredible burden that we're seeing here. And it's because we turned away from science and innovation. And so whoever is the president in January, I certainly think that the key advice is that by not investing in clean energy and in equity, we are throwing away social benefits. And we're throwing away opportunities to make ourselves not only a faster growing economy, but also more resilient against crises like COVID. Because we all know whether it's a virus, we're going to have other huge crises going forward. Australia just lived through a horrific wildfire season where up to 3 billion animals were killed. And whether it's that or whether it's COVID or the wildfire season here or the changing storms that are currently lashing to bit the East Coast, these are all examples of the kinds of things that a pro-equity and green energy economy can actually help us to solve. So whoever is the president, I really hope that's the central feature. And anyone who wants an economic recovery needs to recognize that's where you put your resources. So I have one final question. I'll ask it kind of in parts, which is, are you an optimist? But I want to ask you that same question over, say, one years, five years, 10 years, 100 years. Well, I think actually the answer is the same for each of those, because we have demonstrated through this past century that when we want to innovate around a topic, when we invest not just in a one-off bunch of money for something one year, but when we invest regularly, basic research, more equitable schooling, healthcare. These are things we have examples around the planet that if you want to do it, we can do it. The challenge is the United States has put itself in a hugely partisan box. And so I'm equally optimistic on all those time scales that you mentioned from the next month to the next hundred years, given that I think it's inevitable that we get back into investing and believing in innovation and equity. And I think if we do those two things, we make this story much more workable. And we also restore the US to the position it should be in of being not a global police person, but being a global partner. Because economies around the planet know they need to grow their energy mix. When President Obama and Premier Xi from China were partnering on climate, the US was getting a huge share of those overseas energy contracts. 
We now need to get back to that position. The U.S.-China trade war has taken us away on the short term from a really interesting evolving partnership around energy access and clean energy around the planet. So I actually think that those timescales are going to work together when we decide we're tired of tearing each other down in the United States and we're more interested in actually growing our ability to be not a bully, but a leader worldwide. And I feel like we could easily extend this conversation another hour, but given that I know you've got a call and we're coming up on time, is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have or any parting words for listeners? We're all going to make our own choices in November. I hope just everyone, no matter what your individual party affiliations are, that you recognize that we need to invest in U.S. infrastructure. We need to be a better partner around the world. That will generate more U.S. jobs. And I think that if one votes one's conscious around that, we will actually see what's happened the last few years as an unfortunate digression into partisanship. But it's much easier to build up these opportunities. So that's what I'm looking for in the coming months. Great. Well, Dan, this was awesome. I wish we had another hour. Maybe we'll have you back at some point. But thank you so much for coming on the show. And best of luck. It's my pleasure. Thanks for doing this. Take care. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.